This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week, we welcome Dr. Joe Spurgeon for a discussion on surface dust samples, ERMI scores, and assessing mold exposure. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They're the reason we can continue doing the show. And don't forget, after the show, you can continue the discussion at afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, sponsored by First On Site. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site at firstonsite.com. Our association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, ACGIH. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org. The Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, ParticlesPlus.com, TSI Inc., TSI.com, Sunbelt Rentals, SunbeltRentals.com, April Air, April AIRE.com, Healthy Indoors Magazine, HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. I'm sorry to report that no one identified the fence on the campus of Carnegie Mellon University as the 1993 Guinness Book of World Records holders for most painted object in the world. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, May 6, 2022, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for the monitoring of indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI. Here's today's IEQ Radio Trivia question. Name the EPA's technical contact for environmental measurement and monitoring. Back to you, Joe. Okay, so today we've got Dr. Joe Spurgeon. He has a multidisciplinary doctorate degree in analytical chemistry and environmental health from the University of Pittsburgh. And he was a certified industrial hygienist from 1993 to 2013. His career has included working as a research chemist on the NBS lead paint poisoning program. He directed the FAA's Combustion Toxicology Laboratory. He performed health assessments for the CDC's ATSDR program, implementing the U.S. EPA's Laboratory Exposure Assessment Project, and has worked as a consultant specializing in microbial indoor air quality for the U.S. Public Health Service. He has also performed over 4,000 residential and commercial investigations involving water intrusion, microbial contaminants, and has served as an expert witness in numerous mold cases. Welcome back, Joe. Thank you. Always great to have you. Let's jump right into it. Um, we, we've got the presentation here. We're, going, we're, we're calling this now Surface Dust Samples, ERMI Scores, and Assessing Mold Exposure. I guess before we get started, 
what led to your interest in this this topic and and you know going into such detail and and, and putting together a, a nice presentation like this well a couple of things number one uh reviewing a lot of reports uh from a number of consultants and working at an expert witness allowed me to uh review those reports and it seems to me as as an industry we've kind of uh, overstepped the use of dust sampling uh, and the use of things like Hermes scores. And secondly, um, I'm a little bit concerned about the, the way we use sampling methodologies and we, and we don't really consider the implications of, of the methods themselves, how we analyze our samples and the the implications of how we analyze them and the impact on our ability to interpret them. So I'd like to kind of get a discussion going uh, always, if, if possible, within the industry on those topics. All right. Well, let's let's jump right into it, Joe. Uh, John, if you could put that up. <laughs> you may have to speak up a little bit, Joe. I have a little trouble hearing you, but... Uh-oh. Okay. Uh, yeah, we... there we go. Get a little closer if you will. All right. All right, so this is our, our title. I think we can jump to the next one. All right. All right, uh, again, some of the topics that we've been talking about are sampling objectives, collecting uh, surface dust samples, uh, how they're analyzed by the laboratory and how the reports are, um, how the results are reported. And I think that's a very uh, important topic. The ERMI method uh, and how it's used to assess occupational uh, occupant exposure potentials, and just maybe one slide on uh, the Hershby method, just to make a point. All right, next. Next, yes, sampling objectives. Uh, Talk a little bit about uh, occupant exposure potential versus occupant risk. Uh, Next. So sampling objectives. uh, How will the sample uh, results be used? And within the IAQ community, there's probably three primary objectives. Uh, assessing building-related contamination, or BRC, and that's whether or not the structures, the systems, contents are contaminated. That's very typical, a common objective. Uh, They can be used to assess occupant exposure potential. That is, uh, are there contaminants of concern, for example, mold, bacteria, allergens, etc., that are capable of causing adverse effects, And if there are, are they present at concentrations capable of causing those effects? Next. And there's our third one. Okay. Yeah. So the third primary objective is to assess occupant risk. And for example, are occupants experience adverse health effects due to the contaminants that were detected? Uh, And for example, should occupants vacate homes or offices? And in my opinion, that's the job of the treating physician, not the job of the uh, mold investigator or independent environmental uh, professional. Uh, In my opinion, we should expedite our report if we find a bad situation. We should inform the client and inform the client that they should get our report to the physician as soon as possible and offer to uh, explain our report to the physician uh, if it's requested. But uh, I run into a lot of situations where the IEP has recommended to the client that they should vacate their home or office. And I think that's maybe going a little bit too far. We don't really have that expertise uh, or that function. 
And even though you've got quite a background in that area, you're still telling people and, and you yourself don't recommend people leave a home. Well, I qualified for a doctorate in public health with a concentration in environmental health. I've had graduate work in toxicology and inhalation toxicology. And I managed the FAA's combustion toxicology laboratory for the better part of 10 years. So I think I'm probably better educated in this area than most of the IEPs doing this. And and I certainly don't feel qualified to make those decisions, and I never have. So, yeah, I think we need to have some caution in that area. All right. Good Good, uh, good little warning for our audience there. Let's go to this next one here. Critical step. Yeah. The next topic I'd like to talk about are collecting surface dust samples. And I believe that is a critical step. I think we're all familiar with the old adage of garbage in, garbage out. And anyone who's ever collected a field sample knows that it's uh, not that simple to get a good sample. Easy to get a sample, but not easy to get a good sample. Next. Let's go over why. All right, let's do that. Uh, The sample describes the environment. And according to Koppen, and I've given the reference here, uh, one of the primary challenges of assessing exposures to environmental complaints, I'm sorry, contaminants, is the collection of a representative sample, with the sampling step typically contributing the largest variability in the assessment of the results. And I think we're all familiar with this uh, issue. So a sample that's not representative of the fungal loading in the indoor space that was sampled is not going to be representative of the occupant exposure potential in that space. And I hope uh, we're all all recognizing that this is an issue when we collect a sample. Next. So if I take a sample of a, you know, take a swab directly on an area where I, I got a little two by two square inch section of mold, I take a sample right on that may not be representative of the exposure for the people in that room. Yeah, especially if it was the only spot of visible mold in the entire uh, property. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we have a goal of collecting a sample that's representative of the indoor environment, but we also want to be aware that we also want to be able to interpret that sample. So let's take an example where uh, we're taking a dust sample with a Swiffer cloth, for example, and the individual collects that one sample from the basement, the first floor and the second floor from multiple surfaces of different types. And they're analyzing that sample with qPCR. That individual might argue that that is a representative sample of the indoor environment. Well, that's all well and good. But then I might argue that it's impossible to interpret the sample result for that sample. That individual may interpret it, but I would argue that it cannot be interpreted. So I think we want to recognize that we not only want a representative sample, we want a sample that can be interpreted. You know, Joe, you you do a lot of expert witness work. Um, I'm, I'm guessing this is one area you spend a lot of time educating attorneys and, and discussing when it comes to reviewing other people's reports. Uh, yeah, this is a, this is an important point that I tend to hammer on. Okay. And then I've got a quick uh, text from the audience going back to your recommending a physician. Should that physician be qualified as an immunologist, allergist, 
general practitioner, do you get to that point? No, I don't get to that point. Um, I think we all are aware that it's very difficult. If you, if you do the best job you can and write, and write a wonderful mold report, that's very good. I can write the best mold report that I possibly can and turn that over to a family physician and they don't know what to do with it. And I think we're all aware of that problem. I don't know who to recommend as far as a physician goes on a, on a local basis. So it's kind of a catch-22 to say. Yes, it is. Physician. I understand that. But okay. I also recognize that I'm not a doctor. So I think it was a good, a good clarification. This is a problem with, with the entire industry. Absolutely. All right. Let's go to the next one, John. Okay. So planning to collect a good sample. Uh, if the result is to be meaningful, I think we need to understand the sampling rationale, the reasoning behind the collection of the sample. So the sampling rationale includes, you know, why am I collecting this sample in this location using this sample? What do I expect to learn from the sample? Why am I requesting this method of analysis to be used on this sample? Are there assessment guidelines or decision criteria that we're going to be able to use to interpret the sample results? And why am I going to use this particular method of data interpretation with this sample to achieve the objectives that I have for this project? Let me me clarify on this one, Joe. Are you saying this should be in the report or you should just be thinking about these things before you develop your sampling rationale? No, this is what, uh, when I'm called by a client, I normally take uh, a telephone interview when I, when I, when the client calls me and I'm thinking about this during the telephone interview with the client, when I'm coming up with my project plan and my sampling plan. So I want to know what I'm going to do when I get on site. Once I get on site, this is going to change. It's like uh, coming up with a plan uh, during a battle. I mean, the plan is nothing once you get on site, but at least you have an idea of what you're going to do when you get there. So selecting a method, a sampling method, for example, uh, very few standardized method or validated methods for mold sampling and collecting a sample that's both representative and that can be interpreted is not a simple task. Uh, very few recommendations. Sampling methods are not a, a sexy topic in academia, and they're not well-funded. You can't get money to, to research them. So finding reliable guidance on method selection is, is very difficult. Next. Uh, these are the criteria I use for evaluating methods and for selecting methods and putting them in my toolbox, for example. And I call them the SOX criteria. It's just basic guidance. But does the method have a significance for the sample result? That is, are there numerical guidelines for interpreting the lab report? And I know numerical guidelines is a hot button, but there can be explicit guidelines that are written down, consensus guidelines from a consensus body, or implicit guidelines that we call professional judgment. And I will suggest to you that it's impossible to interpret a numerical laboratory report, spores per cubic meter, for example, without using 
numerical guidelines. It's impossible. What we normally do is use implicit guidelines, that is professional judgment, to interpret that report. But in the back of our mind, we have to have some numerical guideline to interpret a numerical laboratory report. Objective decision criteria for interpreting the sample result. Can we determine whether or not that sample result is low, average, or high? If we can't, why collect the sample? There you go. Yeah. Are there consistent assessments of condition across project and between inspectors independent of experience or bias? If we get the same result in two or three different projects, are we going to make the same decision? Are we consistent? And is there a stable basis for assessment that does not vary with local conditions? For example, If you're taking an air sample and using indoor-outdoor comparisons, are outdoor sport counts stable? Do you make the same decision from property to property? Yes, next. Okay, uh, people might be curious why I uh, took these four sampling methods on the front of my book for, for carpets, but in my opinion, Only one of these four sampling methods meet the SOX criteria and describe the exposure potential of a carpet uh, dust sample. So what I'm trying to illustrate, or the concept that was in my mind, that there are problems that exist with very common sampling methods. And as a matter of fact, the least used sampling method is the only one that meets these criteria. The most commonly used sampling method doesn't meet these criteria, for example. So the next section, uh, I'm going to discuss one of these problems. Before you do, Joe, could you go go back, John? Let's just go over these four methods real quick for those that aren't as familiar with your work. Um, The top one, you got a little template there, and you're using a uh, a cassette to to suck up dust. Go ahead. Well, it's a closed face cassette with a beveled tip uh, tubing on it and it's using an area template yeah it's attached to a pump a sampling pump that draws air through there right then we have the open-faced fixed area cassette and then we have just an open-faced cassette that's just brushed across an unmeasured area of carpet and then we have basically uh, a area template with a not a not a, a micro vacuum but a vacuum to vacuum up carpet dust and are we going to tell people which one you think is the one that is uh, that meets the SOX criteria? Well, I have a whole chapter on comparing these uh, methods, and it's the one on the left in the middle with the open face fixed area microvac cassette. It has the least uh, relative standard deviation and the most sensitivity, and you can develop decision criteria based on that methodology. And that, just for um, a quick, so for those that aren't familiar, the, the one underneath the title there with the little uh, wooden box, that's typical of what people use for an army sample? Yeah, that, yes. If you or it should be. Method. And for other it, methods, but yes, that was used for the army sample, yes. Okay, let's go to the next one, John. 
Okay, let's talk about uh, analyzing dust samples and reporting the results. And, and a couple of comments. Uh, first of all, when you submit your sample to a laboratory, you have options. Uh, and you should be an informed consumer of laboratory services. And I want to make a comment that, in my opinion, this is a very important section to understand. So um, if you have any questions on this presentation, they really should be about this section. This, this is a critical section to understand. Okay. So next. All right. This is an example about uh, selecting the reporting basis uh, for your sample. This was a uh, story that John Tiffany told on himself. Uh, and it was about a failed clearance because of choosing the wrong reporting basis uh, for a sample. And the first thing to understand that mold is in the carpet dust, not in the carpet fibers. So this was a project that he had back in the 90s. Uh, and it was uh, in a corporate Fortune 50 uh, corporate headquarters. And the CEO had caught a cold and he didn't think he should have a cold. So John got a very nice contract to do an investigation in the corporate headquarters because the CEO had caught a cold. So part of the car carpet sampling was that uh, they set the clearance criteria in colony forming units per milligram, which was correct. Then they cleaned the carpet and they uh, failed to meet the uh, clearance criteria. So they cleaned it again and it, Failed to meet the clearance criteria. And they actually did it a third time and it failed. And John had to finally go to the uh, <clears throat> corporate CEO and admit that the uh, clearance criteria were incorrect. Hmm. They were sampling a larger and larger and larger area of carpet to collect the same weight of dust. But that dust contained the same CFUs of mold. So they could not clear the carpet. Hmm. So he had to convince the CEO to change the clearance criteria from CE, CFUs per milligram of dust to CFUs per square foot of dust. And once they did that, then the carpet cleared. Hmm. So this just points out the importance of how you report your sample results. And the idea of thinking about what you're doing before you do it. And not only how you report your sample results, but how you um, instruct the lab to give you your sample results. Yes, yes. But if you don't think to measure the area that you sampled before you do it, you don't have that data. You can't report it on an area basis. So gotcha. you have to know the sampling rationale the sampling parameters before you start, or you haven't got the information available to you. Excellent. Let's go to the next one. Okay, so analyzing surface dust samples. So how the samples analyzed and reported by the laboratory does affect the ability to assess both building-related contamination and occupant exposure potential. And the options for reporting dust samples, basically there's three options. So the standard method that the laboratory is going to use, I call the weight analyzed basis. And the result is four equivalents per milligram. This is what you're all familiar with. 
So it's reported as spore equivalents per milligram of dust analyzed. And that last word is critical, of dust analyzed. The second option is total weight basis. And here you have to request the laboratory to weigh the sample. And the laboratory analyzes spore equivalents per milligram. Then they multiply that by the total weight of the sample and they will report to you spore equivalents per sample. The third option is the area basis where you measure the area that was sampled. You request the sample to be weighed. They report to you spore equivalents per sample. You divide that by the area that was sampled. And in your report, you report spore equivalents per square inch, per square centimeter, per square foot, whatever you want. But you report it on an area basis. And that what, that's what I will suggest to you is the preferred methodology. Okay, next. Joe, before we go, I've got a question. This spore equivalence, what type of analysis is that? QPCR. Okay. I think that's important to clarify. So this is if I'm you're sorry. using QPCR. All right. I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> you knew. <laughs> I knew too, but I wanted to make sure everybody knows. <laughs> Can you real quick go to the next slide? Just let me see what it says. Okay. Go back now. Okay. Yeah. All right, so this is a little bit of a typo, but uh, this is a carpet dust example. Uh, let's just assume this in this example that similar dust samples were collected in, I'm going to say, on two floors of a house rather okay. than in two houses uh, using a microvac cassette, and that you submit the two samples to a laboratory for analysis without any other directions, just using a typical chain of custody. Okay. Next. So if you do that, they're going to use, uh, by default, the weight analyzed basis to analyze your samples. Uh, so they're not going to weigh your sample, and they're just going to take a five milligram portion of each sample and analyze it. So let's assume that the dust collected was 100 milligrams of dust on the first floor and 10 milligrams on the second floor. And they're going to take five milligrams from each sample, and they're going to analyze it. And let's assume that we had 1,000 spore equivalents detected in both five milligram portions of samples. So that they found 200 spore equivalents per milligrams reported for both floors. So as far as the inspector is going to learn from the laboratory, there was the same exposure potential reported for both floors. 200 spore equivalents per milligram. That's what's going to be reported in the laboratory report. But the total fungal loading is actually 20,000 spore equivalents on the first floor and 2,000 spore equivalents on the second floor. So the cleanliness of the carpets differed by a factor of 10, although the inspector is never going to learn this, not based on the laboratory report. And this was because they just went with the weight of the weight analyzed basis. Right. This is the default standard operating procedure for most laboratories. Okay. And if you don't tell them different, that's what they're going to use. All right. Next. All right. So instead, let's assume that the mold inspector requested a 
or wanted to use an area basis to report their results. So in this example, the inspector measures the area that was sampled, requests the analysis on a total weight basis as four equivalents per sample, and that's what's reported to them. So the reports, four equivalents per sample, and then the results are standardized by area, uh, either by square inch per square centimeter per square foot, whatever you want to choose, doesn't make any difference. Using this method, the sample results are standardized. And since they're standardized, just like spores per cubic meter, they can be compared. And this method accounts for variations in both dust weight and area sample. And this is just an example of calculations. But the point is, using the area basis method, the inspector receives a report from the laboratory that shows the difference in the cleanliness of the two carpets. 200 spore equivalents per square centimeter, 20 spore equivalents per square or centimeter on the first and second floors. So now the inspector is aware of the difference in cleanliness between the two carpets that were sampled. The big difference. Okay. Big difference. Okay. Not only that, if you use the area basis, they now can take those data and compare those results between projects. On an area analyzed basis, you cannot compare the results between projects. Secondly, looking at an area basis, I've given you two references here, but the health effects were better associated with results reported on an area basis rather than a weight basis. Results reported on an area basis are standardized by area and allow conditions and occupant exposure potentials to be compared between projects. You cannot do this if your results are reported on a weight analyzed basis. Gotcha. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Joe. All right. You cannot compare airborne samples of spores using raw counts. You can compare them using spores per cubic meter because spores per cubic meter are standardized based on air volume. You have to standardize your results before you can compare the results with other results. Excellent. This, I think this is a good time for us to break for halftime, Joe, and we'll come back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Joe Spurgeon. We're talking dust sampling, uh, surface dust samples, ERMI scores. We'll get into that in a moment and assessing mold exposures. Our marquee sponsor is First On Site, your trusted full service disaster recovery and property restoration company at firstonsite.com. Association sponsors are ACGIH, Advancing Careers of Professionals in Environmental Health, Industrial Hygiene, and Safety, Interested in Defining Their Science, ACGIH.org, AIHA, Healthy Workplaces, A Healthier World, AIHA.org, The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, See More Deeply Through Science and Research, CIRI. 
Science.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit standards development and certifying body for the cleaning and restoration industry, IICRC.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories, free shipping, great pricing, same day results with no rush fee, AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us. Particlesplus.com. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations. TSI.com. Sunbelt Rentals. Availability, reliability, and ease for all your IAQ and restoration needs at sunbeltrentals.com. April Air, healthy air, healthy home, April, A-I-R-E.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers, healthyindoors.com. Okay, we're back for the second half of our interview. Let's jump right back into it, John. We're going to get into the Army section now, I believe. All right. Um, yeah, a little bit about the Army method now, changing gears. We're going to be talking about building-related contamination very briefly and occupant exposure potential with most of the emphasis on occupant exposure potential. Next. All right. Uh, some issues with ERMI uh, scores. So unless the collection method looked like this photo and it was collected from a carpet, and it was reported on a weight-analyzed basis, uh, then it was not an ERMI sample, and we should be very careful uh, using ERMI scores to assess the result because it was really not an ERMI sample. Okay. Yo, I see this all the time. I mean, people swiffering, you know, on the top of the refrigerator or – mailboxes and comparing them and so forth. So what you're saying is it's it if ERMI was developed to be used this way and there's really no support for those other types of uh, other methods for using the ERMI. I don't want to say that. Um, what I'm saying is the, uh, they should be using an ERMI score associated or correlated with that type of sampling. And from that type of surface. And that doesn't uh, exist, does it? The standard ERMI score based on carpet sampling using this methodology uh, from the initial 1,000 and some odd houses uh, should not be used. And I don't think you have a problem with ERMI in general. It's just the misuse of it. Yeah, I'm not going to argue about the initial use of ERMI. I, I think it's been overextended by the IAQ community. Gotcha. Okay, John, there we go. All right, now that I've said that, uh, the data that I'm going to present uh, were collected with uh, filter cassettes and surface swabs. They were reported on an area basis rather than a weight analyzed basis. So they're not ERMI samples. Uh, so neither are Swiffer samples, ERMI samples. However, uh, what I'm going to present, uh, we can consider the implications of the concepts I'm going to present. 
not necessarily the numbers. So look at the concepts. Don't look at the numbers necessarily, but look at the uh, types of information and consider those. I think they're valid. So again, concentrate on the concepts. I think they're valid. Next. Next. All right. So the initial army method, uh, as Joe was saying, uh, was developed to assess building related contamination uh, using carpet dust. And if you look at the uh, right hand Y axis, percent of homes in the U.S. plotted versus uh, army scores. And that was the initial use. And I have no argument with that. Uh, Next, please. However, I, I think the IEQ community uses ERMI scores as a measure of occupant exposure potential. And now we're talking about the right-hand uh, y-axis. And now we switch to looking at correlating ERMI scores with mold level. And that is a total fungal load. And I think that's incorrect. ERMI scores are a function of the difference between group one and group two fungi, not the total fungal loading. So I think right off the bat, we have a difference. Army scores are not associated with mold level. They're associated with the difference between group one and group two mold levels. So that's a problem to begin with. Next. So let's look at what happens when we do associate ERMI scores with mold level. So here we have a plot of ERMI scores from minus six to plus five. And it's plotted against group one contaminant fungi, the concentration of those fungi. And what we get is a bell-shaped curve. Okay, just a standard bell-shaped curve. And this is what you would actually expect because ERMI scores are calculated using the logs. We don't want to get into that, but this is really what you would expect. Okay. So what we have is the highest occupant exposures are not at an ERMI score of plus 20. The highest fungal loadings and occupant exposure potentials are at an ERMI score of between zero and two. Hmm. Okay. Right in here. And that's because we're just looking at the group one fungi now. We're not subtracting no, no. out the group two. No, no, no? no, no. You, you can do this for group one, group two, total fungi. This is just an example. But you okay. get the same, same shape. You get a bell-shaped curve. All right. It's a, it's a function of using the logs to calculate the army graph. That's, that's why. All right. So no matter what you use, group one, group two, total, doesn't make any difference. But what if you subtract... Subtract group two from group one. Well, you subtract group two from group one, you get the army curve. Right. That, but this is not subtracted what I'm out. About is can you use or should you use army scores to associate with occupant exposure potential? And okay. what I'm saying is you should not. <laughs> All right. And this is why. Maximum concentrations occur at ERMI scores between zero and two. Hmm. Okay, next. All right, here's some carpet dust samples, 39 carpet dust samples. Again, 
This is total fungi now, not just group one. This is total fungi, total loading okay. versus ERMI score. And we have three groups of samples. So the first group down here in this green box is from ERMI scores of minus six to plus 15. And they're all very low concentrations of fungi. So basically, no exposure potential at all, very low exposure potential over a very wide range of Hermes scores, minus 6 to plus 15. So again, no association with exposure potential with Hermes scores. We also have a group at minus 6. So at minus 6, we have a 49-fold variation in total fungi. Hmm. And from minus 2.5 to plus 2.5, we have a 100-fold variation in total fungal concentration from 700 to 70,000 spore equivalents. So again, I can't find any association with total fungal loading and occupant exposure potential with ERMI scores. Okay. Next. Next. All right, if we look at individual houses, we have houses one, two, and three, all with an ERMI score of plus 0.7, total fungi, from 13 to 69,000 with a variation of with a five-fold variation in total fungi. We have houses four through six with an ERMI score of minus six, total fungi varying from 500 to 34,000 with a 68-fold variation in total fungi. And we look at houses two and six, we have total fungi of 39,000 with plus 0.7 score and house six with 34,000 fungi with a minus six score. Hmm. Again, no, no association between Hermes scores and total fungi. John, could you go back to the first Ermi slide that shows the keep going, keep going. I just want people to be, there we go. Hey, that one right there. So I just want people to uh, be able to kind of, relate back to this slide on the and and that will help with what we just saw on the other slide. Go ahead back, John. So minus 10 to minus four is in the green area. Okay. Next. All right. We can also set up, this is just an example I set up, but we can also have a situation where total fungi at 110,000 has an ERMI score of plus one, and total fungi at 150,000 has a total ERMI score of plus 0.3. So the higher the fungal loading, the lower the ERMI score. <laughs> so again, there's, there's no logic here as far as associating ERMI scores with total fungi, total fungal loading and occupant exposure potential. Okay, next. So I have some issues with that. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> All right. So this is going on to another topic. This is a different topic. Uh, this has to do with just surface sampling itself, not with ERMI. So we're moving to a different topic now. Okay. So this is uh, sampling surfaces other than carpets. Uh, and the interpretation of sample results for different surfaces. So what I see often is multiple surfaces often sampled using Swiffer cloths, for example, uh, or any sample medium. 
And these are plots of total fungi. And let's just assume you get a laboratory report that uh, says the sample contained uh, 10,000 spore equivalents of, of total mold, for example. So how do we interpret that? Is that high, low, average? What is it? Well, the point is that if that sample had been collected from an air return, that would have been the 10th percentile concentration, very low, no problem at all. If it had been collected from a carpet, it would have been the 50th percentile concentration. So an average, typical concentration. If it had been collected from an article of clothing, it would have been the 97th percentile concentration. So very high, very elevated, and it would have been a concern. So understanding where the sample was collected is important to the interpretation of that sample result. Next. Okay, and putting it in terms of ERMI scores, this is what the relative results would have been like, all the way from a minus eight to a plus uh, 16 or 18, Hmm. depending on what surface was sampled. So the conclusion is that the surface sample should be considered when assessing the sample result. And I don't think we do that very well. I don't even think this is understood very well. No, it's it's not. I think uh, it goes back to your your slide that said ERMI was developed for a certain thing, you know, carpet. Well, it was developed for carpet. And uh, if you want to develop an ERMI score for air returns, that's fine. Or air grills, that's fine. But don't use the carpet score for a return. Or a Swiffer that's collected from the basement, the first floor, and the second floor. Even worse. (laughs) Okay, next. All right, so some of the characteristics of of ERMI scores. So ERMI scores only apply to carpet dust samples uh, that were collected using a specific sampling method, uh, not to mix surfaces sampled using a Swiffer, for example. Results are reported on a weight-analyzed basis rather than an area basis. So sample results are not standardized and and really can't be compared. Hmm. Uh, Scores are calculated based on the difference between group one and group two fungi. So scores do not reflect total fungal loading or occupant exposure potential. Uh, And an ERMI score does not represent a unique fungal loading for assessing occupant exposure potential. All right, so assessing occupant exposure potential, uh, going to be talking about an alternative method using total fungal loading. So let's see what we can do with that. I've been kind of raining on our everyone's parade so far. Uh, There is an alternative approach that I use, and I can only describe what I use. There's probably many approaches, but it can be used to assess building-related contamination and occupant exposure potential if you wish to use it. Uh, The method may look complex, but it's actually fairly simple to learn and to use, and you can put it in operation in a weekend. I've taught several people how to use it. It takes about a weekend to put it into operation. Uh, Once you do that, it is operational, and you can uh, kind of forget about it and use it. 
Next. Next. So this is just an example. Let, let's assume these are uh, 18 uh, samples that you've collected from soft surfaces. And uh, these are the data for Orobacidium, for example. So you would uh, list the samples from lowest to highest concentration. Uh, and for example, the ninth sample out of 18 would be the uh, 50th percentile sample. And this has a concentration of around uh, 2,000 spore equivalents. So going to the next one, what you would do is create a table, like the 50th percentile is 2,000 spore equivalents for Orobacidium. You would create a table like this from the 16th, 50th, 75th, 95th percentile concentrations. Uh, and once you create this table for Orobacidium, you could create it for Penicillium, Brevicompactum, for total fungi, for Stachybotrys, for Cladosporium, whatever you want. Uh, you could do it for soft surfaces, air returns, air supplies, hard surfaces, whatever you want. Once you create these tables, you're done. You can stop. That's all you need. What I'm going to be doing is using graphs in the following presentation just to illustrate the concept. You don't need the graphs. All you need is a table like this, and it doesn't take you very long to create one. Yo, how is this sample? Is this... Um... An open face cassette sample, or is this what kind of sample are we looking at? No, uh, this is a micro. Uh, this is from a soft surface micro bag. Anyone, however you sample, this is an open face cassette that I use. Okay. Uh, yes, but however you sample, you use your methodology because you want it to reflect your methodology. And I got a question from the audience: Is this method in your book? It is, and I also, uh, I've, I've taught several people how to use it. Uh, contact me. I'd be glad to help you if you're interested. All right. Okay, so again, uh, this is soft surface, microvac cassette. Um, these are the plots, and also it can be just a simple table. I'm just using plots to make it visual for you. But these are uh, total fungi. These are total aspergillus, total ermi. 36 ermi fungi aspergillus total penicillium so we can see that total fungi the 50th percentile is 3,000 spore equivalents so how can this help us let's go to the next one so these are air supply grills uh, collected using swab samples so if the samples are collected from air supply grills using a swab sample analyzed by qpcr point is you can use this graph or the table as I indicated to you to interpret the next 10, 50, or 100 samples that you collect using this methodology from air supply grids. And that's very powerful. So for a couple of hours work done on a Saturday morning, you can interpret the next 100 samples you collect. And air supply grills are an interesting choice of location. Um, and I know you can do this in any number of locations, but maybe you could just spend a, a minute on why air supply grills can be so informative. Yeah, uh, because uh, the air delivery system can be a source of occupant exposure. If I have the resources available to me during an inspection, 
I like to sample uh, the air return, the air supply, and horizontal surfaces. And I like to correlate the results for those three locations. I consider what's on the air supply grill or the boot of, of the grill uh, a potential occupant exposure source. There can be a lot of stuff in a wet HVAC system. I want to know what's coming out of the system, not what's in the system. What's coming out of the system, what's on the air supply grill, is probably what's being exposed into the breathing zone of the occupants. And if I can correlate what's on the grill and what's on horizontal surfaces, I'm even more certain of what's been circulating in the indoor air. Excellent. Next, John. All right. So how can we interpret those samples then? Uh, this may look complex. It's not. What we're interested in is the 50th percentile concentration, which is a median concentration, and the average concentration, which is the 73rd percentile, but we're going to call it the 75th percentile. And also, if we were doing clearance sampling, the 16th percentile concentration, which is one standard deviation below the median. And the 84th percentile, is, which is one standard deviation above the median. Don't even worry about this in this uh, situation. But the median concentration and the average concentration. Next. Okay, why? So if I'm assessing building-related contamination, I want to use the 50th percentile concentration to assess building-related contamination. If I'm assessing occupant exposure potential, I want to use the 75th percentile concentration because the dose is equal to the average concentration times the exposure time. So those are the two concentrations I'm interested in. Okay. Next. All right, here's the, how I determine whether or not concentrations are typical or elevated. So here's the cumulative percentile distributions from the 10th percentile to the 95th percentile for the ERMI group one and group two fungi. And if we look at the percentiles, some of them are in blue and some of them are in red. So these are the ratios of the group one contaminant fungi to the group two common environmental fungi. And those that are in blue are those where the common environmental fungi dominate. Those that are in red are where the contaminant fungi dominate. <laughs> so we're switching from typical environments to contaminated environments. And that switchover is at the 70th percentile concentration. Okay? <laughs> so that's my break point. So how I analyze it is this way. First... I use the distribution of total fungi for the 36 Hermi fungi rather than a score to assess condition. That is, I assess, I use that to assess building-related contamination or the clean versus discard decision for soft surface items, for example. Mm -hmm. Second, I then use the distribution of the individual fungi to identify contaminants of concern, that is to assess occupant exposure potentials. Interesting. 
Next. So here's the distributions for all 36 ERMI fungi, group one fungi, group two fungi, and total fungi. So I used the distributions for the group one and group two and total fungi to assess building-related contamination. And I used the distributions for the 36 fungi to assess occupant exposure potential. Now go to the next. Next. All right. So here's an example of a carpet dust report. It's a, it's a real report. And it's from one of the individuals I taught how to use this methodology. So it's a real system. The first thing I'll point out is Orobacidium. And the reason I point that out is that it's the largest number in the middle column. So everybody's eye just immediately goes towards Orobacidiums, 2,000. But we don't know whether it's important or not. But if you look at the last column, then we can see, yeah, it's important. It's 85th percentile concentration. So it's mm-hmm. elevated. So we know it's elevated. If we look at Ketomium, Ketomium is 29 spore equivalents. But if we look at Aspergillus ochracius, it's 28 spore equivalents for the same concentration. So is one important and one not important? Are they both important or both not important? Well, ketomium is at the 40th percentile concentration. Ocracious is at the 90th percentile concentration. Mm-hmm. So ketomium is kind of typical concentration, nothing to worry about. Ocracious, 90th percentile, it's elevated. If we look at Total spores detected. I didn't indicate the group two fungi, but we're given the total fungal loading. So I can evaluate the condition of the space that was sampled. And I can evaluate total fungal loading and occupant exposure potential in general and building related contamination to see what the condition of the space was. And fourth, I can tell the client and I can tell any physician that's involved that we had six contaminants of concern detected. In the last column, the the red dots indicate those specific fungi that were detected at elevated concentrations. So we get a lot more information from this approach than simply an ERMI spore. This is all from a carpet dust sample. Yeah. And just one. Well, take as many as you want, as many as the client can afford. I, I, right. I'm not a proponent of just taking one sample, but sometimes you have resources to work with. Sure. sure. But if I'm going to take one, one sample, I would rather have a report like this than simply an ERMI score. Yep. I agree. Next. Uh, this is a hurts me method. I'm not going to... Uh, Go over this. If anyone's interested, uh, it's on the report. But the next, please. Next. All right. This is what I want to get to is about uh, for Hertzme. Uh, this is the prevalence of the uh, five Hertzme fungi by surface type. And we have carpet, soft surface, clothing, hard surface, air returns, and supplies. And the point is that if you're going to use whether it's an ERMI score or a Hertzme score or whatever, 
that all of these fungi are not always detected on every type of surface. Uh, this, you know, here's we have 93 samples, and this is the prevalence on 93 different surface samples, the prevalence of detection. So if you're going to use something like HertzMe, uh, <laughs> HertzMe scores were based on less than 3% of the fungal loading and typically less than 1% of the fungal loading. And on many of these surfaces, uh, these fungi weren't even detected. So the sampling locations are an obvious influence on the interpretation of the results. And that's the only point I want to make. Okay. Next. So in summary, uh, ERMI scores have several limitations as currently applied in IEQ investigations. Uh, I think they only should be applied to carpet dust samples. They're based on a specific sampling method uh, reported using the weight analyzed basis and they do not reflect total fungal loading. Next. And with that, I will close out my presentation. Joe, with that, I want to go to the roundup, John, and I will get to Ralph. I'll get to your question in the roundup. The Roundup is brought to you by April Air, providing healthy humidity, ventilation, and air purity solutions for new and existing homes. April Air, healthy air, healthy home at aprilaire.com. Okay, John, let's go back to that presentation about the third from the last PowerPoint. I've got a question. Isn't Wallamy a semi-semi present above your op point of 70%? Uh, this one here, yeah. Um, one of the one of the audience said, "Isn't Wallamia present above your op point of 70? No, it's, it's at seventy five percent. Yeah, we just so, you just didn't put a a red dot there, I guess. Yeah, you could. I mean, it would be a that's that's your professional judgment as to what percentage you hit it. Yeah. Okay. But Excellent. It is above seventy percent. Seventy five's on borderline. I just hit the ones above eighty uh, percent and above. Is what I hit. Gotcha, Cliff. Final questions, comments? Yeah, yeah, just just one question, Joe. Um, you know, one of the things I've learned from looking at thousands of HVAC systems in, in homes, particularly uh, homes that uh, have fire damage, uh, a lot of times the residue found on the supply grill or on the supply register is inconsistent with the residue inside the ductwork, because what happens is an airstream is coming out of that register. And when you have a lot of sort of residue in the air in that room, it impinges onto that register. It didn't come through. This was, this didn't come through the register to get in the room. This is impingement of dust uh, that's already in the room. So I just, Wondered if you've ever encountered the same thing or if you could comment or. I can't really comment. It's a matter of uh, you have to use your procedures and standardize on it. Get a database and compare your results within your database. My point is establish a database for how you sample and how you investigate and compare the next results you get against your database. 
That's my recommendation. I don't think okay. enough of us do that. No, very few actually. Joe, I, I just want to kind of summarize real quick. You, you did a good summary, but I'm I'm getting the impression that um, Army, maybe not Army so much as QPCR, has some real potential if used properly. Oh, yeah. I, I, personally, I believe QPCR is a, a very good methodology. I don't even know. I haven't. Well, I mean, I've been retired for a while, but but my gosh, yeah, yes, it's very good. I still think there's places to use culturable samples. I use culturable samples and QPCR, depending on the objective of my sampling and the project objectives. I also really like the way you differentiate between building-related contamination and occupant exposure potential, I think, is, is the terminology you use. Um, I get the impression that most people get them mixed up. And what they're really trying to do is figure out if there's building-related contamination, and they automatically assume that's also an occupant exposure potential. Comment? Yeah, they're two different things. Uh, if I were going to take an air sample in a house, for example, and I were interested in assessing building-related contamination, okay, I, I might take five-minute uh, slit impaction cassette samples. Fine. If I'm going to assess occupant exposure potential, I'm going to take 60 to 90-minute uh, filtered cassette samples. So I have to understand my objective, and I differentiate between those two objectives, and I'm going to use different sampling methods. If I'm taking surface dust samples, building-related contamination, okay, take a tape lift sample if you're looking at BRC. If I'm looking at occupant exposure potential, I'm going to be using QPCR or culturable samples. So to me, there is a difference. Absolutely. And I, I just, I've always felt like a lot of IEPs should stick more to determining if there's building related contamination and stay away from the occupant exposure potential. They just don't have the, they don't have the, uh, go ahead. I, I, yeah, I, I kind of disagree with that. Well, then don't take people's money and okay. don't give them the impression that they're doing a complete inspection. I, but I, isn't building-related contamination important? It's, yes, it's, it's very important. But if there's an occupant exposure, don't give the people the impression that you're doing a complete inspection. Gotcha. Gotcha. Joe, anything you'd like to add before we go? It's always a pleasure talking with you, always enlightening, and um, we, we love having you on. No, I've been hitting this this idea of sampling uh, methodology and lack of uh, validation uh, for many, many years. I haven't made much progress, but someone's <laughs> listening. <laughs> I think you're making a little more progress than you may realize here. I don't know. I, I, I know there's a group of, of people that you and I email with quite regularly that are at least trying to figure this out, and uh, that's a start. Great. All right. Well, I want to thank Dr. Joe Spurgeon for joining us today. This was always, sometimes I get a little, uh, 
uh, over my head at times, but that's okay. You know, I'll go back and listen again and check it out. But for those of you that have any questions, please send questions to me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. I know Joe's always interested in getting comments and feedback on his presentations. He doesn't think he has all the answers. He wants our input as well. And, and especially those of you that, you know, have some good background in, in this type of thing. Uh, also, if you get a chance, join us on afterthoughts.iaqradio.com, uh, sponsored by First On Site. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to Dr. Joe Spurgeon, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith that the controls, most importantly, our audience and sponsors, we will be back in two weeks live, but next week we've got a great flashback show for you. Let's see. David Jacobs will be with us in two weeks live from the National Center for Healthy Housing. So come back and join us for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 